This is Nicholas Schreck, live at the Sport Palast in Berlin. Hey, this is Jason Honey. I am Boy True, aka The Shady Listener, and this is Radio On Historical Series number six. So here we are on a melancholy, gray, and rainy Berlin afternoon at one of the most historic places in the former Berlin, the old Berlin, totally ignored on this rather dreary urban afternoon, but we are here to commemorate the Sportspalast, which was one of the most significant buildings culturally and historically in modern German history and Berlin history. And to commemorate this important edifice, the only thing here, we're standing in front of a rather Stalinist looking ugly social project that does not conjure up the grandeur of the former Sportpalast. But the only thing here to remind passers-by that this was once a place of historical significance is a bent metal sign, which is embedded in the soil here. And it says in German here, from 1910 to 1972, the Sportpalast stood, the Sport Palace. And I will read in German what it says. This is what the local government put up with a picture of the Sportpalast as it looked at its height of grandeur. Er wurde durch Eisreviewen, Musikdarbeitigung, Sportveranstaltigung und das Sechstagerennen bei den Berlinern beliebt mit politischen Kundebungen erlangte er historische Bedeutung. Am 18. Februar 1943 stellte der nationalsozialistische Reichspropagandaminister hier auf einer Großkundebung die demagogischen Fragen, wollt ihr den totalen Krieg? Wollt ihr ihn, wenn nötig, totaler und radikaler, als wir ihn uns heute überhaupt vorstellen können? Als Antwort schreien die versammelten Massen fanatisch, ja! And uh, loosely translated, that basically says, here between 1910 and 1973 was the Sportpalast. It was here that ice reviews, music events and presentations, sporting events, etc., etc., and especially the six-day bicycle race, that was a post-war uh, um, invention, uh, took place. It was here also as well, uh, via, uh, because of political rallies and gatherings, that the uh, Sportpalast uh, took on particular meaning. On the 18th, 1943, the National Socialist Propagandist Minister held a speech here in which he asked the audience, are you ready for total war? A war that in all its totality could be way more radical than anything you could possibly ever imagine. At which point the collected audience screamed, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so here we are standing at, I believe, number 146 Potsdamer Straße at the Ecke Palastrasse, rush hour Friday. Schöneberg, Berlin, uh, where once the Sportpalast once stood is not quite a big, huge, vacant lot, but uh, is a big, huge, massive social housing system. An ugly social living project. Uh, sometimes referred to as um, um, uh, Palaststrasse Nummer 1, referred to locally as the Palaseum. Okay? Um, as the sign told us, and as Nicholas just read, between 1910 and 1973, the Sportpalast was here. Yeah? Sportpalast was a pretty elegant building, 
uh, it was designed by this guy named Hermann Dernberg. It was built in 1910. It took well, the first construction commenced in 1908. Uh, it opened in November of 1910. In its day, it was considered to be both the largest activity center in Europe at the time, as well as the, as the largest ice sports center in Europe. Hockey rink, uh, speed skating, etc., etc., etc. And yeah? every, every kind of entertainment exhibit, political parties used it for mass meetings. And one important thing is that as the center of German cultural life, Berlin, uh, the Sportspalast hosted Marlene Dietrich, the artist George Gross, uh, the communist writer Bertolt Brecht, the entire spectrum of the Weimar Republic, uh, the Berumtheit or celebrity of the Weimar Republic were all often seen here in the many illustrated dailies at the events at the Sportpalast. So, even though today on this rainy day in Berlin nobody is here and there's hardly anything except this state metallic sign to remember it, this was very much the center of Berlin life from 1910 until 1973 when it was demolished. It was also here that after the First World War and during the Weimar period that uh, Max Schmeling, Max Schmeling, the German heavyweight boxer, the guy who took down Joe Lewis in uh, New York City, uh, fought some of his greatest fights. It was also here during the interwar period that lots of different political parties uh, held some of their uh, biggest rallies, not just the Nazis. The Social Democrats, but a social the Communist Party. Party. Ernst Thälmann spoke here. Numerous people spoke here. Every major political leader of the Weimar Republic spoke here. Right. Um, as far as Max Schmeling, for those of you who weren't around in the 30s, really like Max Schmeling and, and Joe Lewis, the boxing battle that was held in America was like the, a proxy war held through boxing between Nazi Germany and America. And, and Max Schmeling's celebrity was very much forged here at the Palast. So in January of 1933, the Nazis come to power. A few days later, that was January 30th of 1933, a few days later, Adolf Hitler gave a huge address here broadcast all over Germany, listened to by millions, in which he celebrated the party, in which he celebrated their rise to power, and in which he proclaimed what was coming for Germany. Okay? Uh, then, almost 10 years later, he delivered his Winterhilfswerke speech. Right. The Winterhilfswerke was during the war um, for, for poor people in Germany. It was a social program in which clothing and goods were gathered from German citizens to give to uh, the less fortunate, and Hitler used the opportunity to give a speech at that time in which he announced that the war against Britain would be accentuated and expanded to bombing civilian targets and, ac and actually, you know, and, and so the Sportspalast was central to a lot of the propaganda speeches of World War II and, and, and became globally important so it was here that Hitler really announced that he would be fighting against Britain, you know, even more brutally and, and attacking civilian targets, which was approved by the German people and very much cheered here. And that was during this Winterhilfswerke speech. In 1935, a few years before that, uh, the Nuremberg Laws, when they came into effect, were very much sealed into place by a gigantic rally here that was led by the editor of De Sturmer, Julius Streicher. 
um, who carried a bullwhip with him and, and affected a very brutal uh, appearance. And, and so that, the speech that he gave here was very significant in signaling how radical the Nazi regime was going to be with the racial laws and the so-called Nuremberg laws, which were very much celebrated here at the Sportpalast. Uh, and then, of course, we have to mention what was mentioned over here on this uh, information board that we encountered when we first came in, uh, namely the February 1943 speech delivered by Josef Goebbels, popularly referred to as the Total War Speech. After the German surrender at Stalingrad, two weeks after that, uh, Goebbels, in a bid to sort of rally the German public, not only behind the troops at the front, but also in terms of the war effort at home, urged people through a dynamic speech, uh, urged people to uh, get ready for what was to come, and prompting that by asking if they were ready for the war to take on a whole new dimension, a war that might possibly be more radical uh, beyond anything they could possibly imagine. What that ultimately meant is that people were probably going to have to work a lot more. That meant that more people were going to be mobilized, uh, which meant that the entire war effort was going to be stepped up to a degree that would, for, at that point in time was totally unimaginable. At that point, really, and it was totally enthusiastically greeted by the German people, it meant that rather than be fought by professional soldiers and the Wehrmacht and the Waffen-SS and Luftwaffe, the war would now be fought on the home front and that civilians would be doing the brunt of the fighting. So there would be no, that, and that was a very radical step in world history that, you know, before that professional armies conducted war. Now he, Goebbels asked the civilians to become part of the war effort to an unprecedented degree. It was a massive publicity stunt. He packed the place beyond capacity. He had something like oh, about a hundred uh, Knight's Cross winners present in the front rows so that everything looked absolutely fabulous on film, on celluloid. Uh, the place was absolutely jam-packed with banners. Uh, I mean, talk about a rally. Talk about a rally. It was like a mini Nuremberg inside. Okay? And, and generally, most uh, biographers of Goebbels consider it his finest hour as far as oratory. He gave this incredibly impassioned and polished and seemingly spontaneous and very emotional speech. It was that, massively rehearsed. Yeah, of course, like everything Goebbels did. He was a showman and a performer, and he understood how to use the cinema and the way that this rally was filmed was beautifully lit and, you know, as Jason said, packed with all, with all the Iron Cross winners in the front row, battle veterans, and a very impressive display, uh, ultimately desperate and, and a failure, but really the last gasp of the Nazi propaganda machine to try to convince the German public after the defeat at Stalingrad that there was a hope of winning the war. He was so proud of himself after the speech that he uh, popularly remarked that I had them so riled up that if I would have told them to jump off the roof of a building, they would have done it. <laughs> yeah. So, about 10 years after uh, Hitler's uh, first speech that he delivered here, the one from February of 1933, almost to the day, an RAF night raid uh, blew the roof off the Sportpalast. Okay, however, they managed to clean it up enough, so much so that within about a month and a half, it was sort of open for action again. This time, ice skating, hockey, etc., etc. Unfortunately, at that point in time, it was too, too cold to really accommodate an audience. Okay, so the Sportpalast was just a shadow of its former self. 
after the war, I believe about two years after the war, 47, 48, to put a roof back on it. Okay, and then this is when we begin to receive visits in, him, in Berlin by people like Benny Goodman, uh, Louis Armstrong played here, um, a couple of other... Uh, um, well, very, very much under the aegis of the OSS, which was the predecessor to the CIA and the U.S. Army, a concerted propaganda effort to win the, the hearts and minds to of win the, uh, the defeated German people over to American pop culture. Mm -hmm. So through all of these things that were forbidden, obviously black entertainers, um, jazz, which swing was banned, so Benny Goodman and swing music, basically what represented the Western American culture that Goebbels himself had prohibited was very much pushed by the occupying American forces. Also, as a counterweight to the Soviet forces who in the eastern part of Germany were pushing Russian culture. So the, sure. again, the sport palast again became part of this propaganda war to push American pop culture and all of the values supposedly associated with it onto the German people. And it all reached a crescendo in either April or May of 1958 when at a Johnny Ray show, the kids went completely wild and basically started a mini riot. Um, compared to what would come a few months later, it was, I guess, relatively mild, okay? But that Johnny Ray riot was enough to alert the local police that they were going to be very, very, very present at the Bill Haley and his Comets concert in October of 1958. Now, that concert was absolutely jam-packed. They had an opening app that was completely incompatible with Bill Haley and his comments. The kids let everybody know that they did not like what they were being forced to listen to, okay? And if that wasn't enough, the kids were also kind of scratching their heads about how short Bill Haley's songs were. Two minutes, two minutes, and then all of a sudden the show was over in 40 minutes and Bill Haley and his comments just walked off stage while well, the kids went bonkers, okay? And you can see the footage for yourself. Um, they absolutely stormed the stage. They were storming the stage while he was playing, okay? Uh, they completely ripped apart the seating, threw chairs and benches all over the room, flipped over the piano, tore the stage apart. I'm assuming the Comets got their drum set and instruments off the stage before all of that could, could be uh, destroyed. Um, apparently, Bill Haley watched it from somewhere and was completely appalled by what he was seeing. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, okay. rock. And it, rock, it is important rock. to comment that the generation of young people who grew up at ground zero of the totally destroyed Berlin um, had a very like nihilistic upbringing, almost an existentialist, no future way of looking at the world. So the German youth, their reception to what was then called beat music, which we would call rock and roll, was much more violent and much more, I mean, they were, they were very frustrated about their hopes for life. Uh, Germans were looked down upon and this very aggressive music for them came out of nowhere because of the very anodine uh, cultural framework of Nazi Germany, they weren't exposed to blues music, they weren't exposed to American pop music. So when rock and roll hit Europe, for the Germans it was a revelation, and this very frustrated mood of German youth, which eventually, 10 years later, or 20 years later, uh, turned into Krautrock and the unique mood of German rock music, which is very different than Anglo American rock music, sure. I would say. But Bill Haley, if those of you who don't know, was 
although he's pretty forgotten now, before Elvis, he was like the, he was considered the wild man of rock and roll and like a, a, a total taboo-breaking transgressive artist. So in Germany, which was a very conservative culture then, that was shocking, as was Johnny Ray's very emotional. Crying on stage. He, yeah, totally un-German behavior. He would cry, he would be extremely passionate, unlike the German pop male singers of that time. So very radical break. So again, you have some of the most important cultural changes in Germany happening here at the Sportpalast. So after we, we had heard that Bill Haley and the Comets, which was, although largely forgotten now, really the pioneering worldwide rock and roll sensation that began what in Germany was largely called beat music, and that and that's partly why even the Beatles called themselves the Beatles, this idea of beat music, which was different than beatnik. A lot of people confuse that. But Germany called rock and roll beat music. And uh, 10 years you know, after Bill Haley and Johnny Ray had their initial riotous and, and controversial success here, American bands started touring Germany, of course, famously, the Beatles wouldn't have existed without their time in Hamburg, but Berlin, too, had a very important uh, place. Also, because of the American occupying troops and the British occupying troops, there was a lot of fandom of rock music here in Berlin, maybe more than other German cities. It was a lot more cosmopolitan, a lot more open to Western influences. So. Uh, one of the bands that came here, and there's an interesting historical side story to that, to a subject I have researched, is the Beach Boys, that very un-German and most Californian of bands, played here at the Sportpalast in 1969. And during the time that the Beach Boys were here, a British rock journalist interviewed Dennis Wilson. And while Dennis Wilson was here in Berlin, he spoke to this British rock and roll magazine about a new discovery of his, a guitarist and singer-songwriter that he was planning to put out on the Beach Boys' Brother Records, and at great expanse, talking about his musical talent and his philosophy, uh, somebody that he called the Wizard. So it was here in Berlin in 1969 that Dennis Wilson made the first public mention to pop cultural history of his friend and discovery, Charles Manson. And then the secondary aspect of that, uh, why it is connected to the Manson saga yet again, is that uh, Manson said to his parole officer, and there are documents to this effect, and they were confirmed by the Beach Boys' entourage, that uh, for that particular tour, Manson was supposed to be one of the opening acts for <laughs> the Beach Boys. Now, I don't know how he would have gotten permission to come to Europe, because usually if you're, if you're uh, on parole, you can't leave the country. But, right. but maybe they would have worked something out. In either case, the plan was that Charles Manson would have been the opening act uh, of a European tour, an English tour. Crazy, So huh? he could well have played at the Sportpalast, bringing his own version of Total War. Could you imagine Charles Manson loose in Berlin, hanging out over the Kommune 1, over there in Wedding? 
thing I do is always brand new. I'm a real person inside. I'm not a phony. I don't put on no airs. I say what I think. You see what I'm saying? Um, speaking of Kommune 1, uh, another event that we certainly have to talk about was the Mothers of Invention concert here at the Sportplatz in 1968. Now, just prior to that, you must have heard about the Pudding assassination, in which Herbert Humphrey, the vice president under Richard Nixon, paid a state visit to West Berlin. I believe he was on his way back to the States from Nam. He'd been in Nam paying a visit to the troops there. And he was on his way back to the States, uh, landed in West Berlin, and while out at the airport, I assume it was Tegel, uh, Fritz Teufel and some of his kind of uh, West Berlin, I'm not sure if Fritz Teufel was one of the wandering hash smokers, this hippie gang at the time, okay, but they um, pied Hubert yeah. Humphrey. It was called the Pudding Assassination, right. okay? It was all just meant in fun and jest, okay? But the uh, West Berlin cops certainly took it very, very, well, very seriously. Well, also the year before that, there was the Benny Onisorg uh, incident in 1967. Yeah. Uh, and the mood in Berlin was far more politically um, unstable and seething than it was in America. Uh, uh, Ber Berlin hippies were not peaceful. They really were agitating for revolution and, and they were much more influenced by Marxist and Leninist rhetoric. And there was sort of a, um, there was much more of a, of a feeling that there will be a violent revolution. So this pudding attack on the vice president of the United States was a big deal at that moment, even though it was intended as a kind of countercultural prank, um, you know, but that was the mood of Berlin at that moment. Fritz Teufel, the hippie leader, ended up uh, getting arrested and locked up. And uh, consequently, at the Mother's Invention show, a bunch of people from the Kommune 1 came marching over here. And while Zappa was playing, in between songs, they were urging Zappa and the Mothers of Invention to encourage the audience to en masse, there are two stories about this, okay, either to march over to the Allied Central Command in Berlin and burn it down, or to rally the crowd to make their way over to the Moabit prison where Fritz Teufel was locked up, where he was sitting in the bricks, and to break him out, okay? Well, Zappa is notorious for his disdain, dislike for hippie groupthink. So this just completely annoyed him. And so from the stage, apparently, he was just telling them, hey man, you guys are just like your parents. You're just like your parents, you know? Who's thinking around here? This is an absolutely stupid idea. All you're gonna do is end up landing in prison yourselves, yeah? And so the crowd apparently started screaming, you're not the mothers of invention, you're the mothers of reaction. At which point they just kept on getting louder and louder and louder and at which point he just kept on turning up the dials till it got to this ridiculous ear-splitting level and completely drowned out the crowd. Yeah. And that, that is very typical of the difference between the American counterculture, which tended to be drifting towards dropping out of society, and the German counterculture, which were known as Gammler, not hippies. Gammler basically means like bums or hobos. Right. Um, that's how they were referred to by the German culture, where Germ German youth were really trying to get politically organized, fighting the war in Vietnam, you know, not, not just asking for peace, but actually on the side of the North Vietnamese, very different approach to it. So, the, so you know, Frank Zappa, who was notoriously apolitical, was the very worst uh, person to try to recruit to this very Germanic thing. And then if we go above the right and left dichotomy, 
the thing is, German politics are always very radical, whether it's Goebbels on the right or the hippies of Germany on the left, it tended towards violent agitation. So that, that is how the counterculture here, and in that atmosphere you had many of the biggest American rock acts. Jimi Hendrix performed at the Sportpalast. The Doors performed at the Sportpalast. The Moody Blues. The Moody Blues from England, another group that which was just starting to become its iconic superstar status after the death of Sid Barrett. Uh, Pink Floyd played here in their early days and we will play some music from some of the concerts that are still extant. But, you know, a lot of the major American and English rock bands played at the Sportpalast. With your ear down to the ground We want the world and we want it Okay, so um, as an addendum to our little discussion we just had, conversation we had over there around the corner regarding the Sportpalast, is in the Palaststrasse, directly around the corner from the uh, uh, Sportpalast, is what is today called the Palaststrasse Bunker. Yeah, back in the day it was referred to as the Sportpalast Bunker. It is an above-ground bunker. It is called a Hochbunker in German. Uh, it is sealed off to the public. You cannot tour it. Yeah? However, it is, is maintained by the Berlin Unterweltverein, which is the organization here in Berlin that offers tours of former World War II and Cold War bunker systems. Um, this was built in 1944 and 1945 by Soviet forced labor, both male and female. After the war, the United States Army tried to get rid of it, which means they tried to blow it up, but quickly realized that trying to do so was virtually impossible, and had they actually been able to do it, it would have caused so much local property damage that it really wouldn't have been worth anyone's while. So directly after the war, the United States Army used it as a storage facility, and if I'm not mistaken, the Berlin police are using it as a storage facility right now. Now it's, uh, it's covered with vines and, you know, foliage is growing over it and it's, it's starting to decay Moss. and falling apart. Moss. And A bunch of crappy tags and blazers and burners. But it is pretty impressive. And another thing that's kind of impressive about it as well too, as much as I don't really care for the Palaceum, namely this big huge uh, social project building uh, built between 1974 and 1977, because this bunker is so, so massive, they had to basically build above and around it. Fine. Anyway, okay, so I know you can't see what I'm talking about, but if I look at the bunker, this big, huge, massive uh, social project housing building basically extends up, above, over, and around, and across the back of the bunker. Yeah, okay, so that is all. You've been listening to the historical series on Radio On Berlin with Nicholas Schreck and Jason Oney. For more information, visit us on www.radioonberlin.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Radio on Berlin. Yeah! yeah.
Lo de los nombres, lo de los nombres, lo de los nombres.